Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jim Daduchu, and this time round, I'm going to start in a rather unusual place. For starters, I'm going to mention another podcast. That's not particularly good form in your own podcast, is it? But there's a reason for that. So, going back, going to say three years ago now, I was working on a different podcast. I, I've been working on Condensed Histories for longer than that. Greg and I, Greg's in the background, maybe he's about to pop up and say hello. Hello again. Hello. He and I were doing Condensed Histories in a very different format four, maybe five years ago, where the two of us would chat. We'd chat about all kinds of different topics. But in the meantime, I was approached by this genius producer. Shout out to Dan Morell there. Hi, Dan. And he liked what I was doing on some of my history projects. And he said, I've got an idea and you kind of doing something similar. And it led to a podcast that I'm still very proud of called Neon. Now, Neon isn't technically dead, but it's certainly in hibernation. And we ran for 49 episodes, didn't quite get to that 50. And in it, I did one episode on Akira. And indeed, Neon has a little pill next to its name, if you could still find it on Twitter, for example. And the reason why it has that little pill next to it was a reference, because both Dan and I loved Akira. Indeed, during the pandemic, Dan sent me a special anniversary version of the entire Akira comic. That's more than 2,000 pages of manga which is in bound into i think six editions it was an amazingly generous gift thank you so much dan now what's any of this got to do with because you clicked on this and it's talking about the olympic games well it's because we did an episode on akira the manga and anime and i would suggest that you go back to it but the interesting thing is it was created in the 1980s it was still running in the 1990s it was set in neo tokyo because there'd been world war three that had wiped everything out but it was all set around the 2020 tokyo olympics and this was remarkable because in the 1980s nobody had decided or chosen where the 2020 olympics was going to be and there ends up being this catastrophic event that stops the olympic games from happening indeed the whole of tokyo is trashed in akira it is a remarkable both story and animated movie i believe you can see it on netflix at the moment depending on where you are in the world 
sit down. That was the anime, so just so to be clear. So manga is when it's in comic form, you read it in a book, and anime is the animated version of that manga. And there's loads of them that are both. For example, Attack on Titan, the one with all the big giants in it. That started quite traditionally as a manga, and now it's a hugely popular anime. That's just one example. But what got the West really looking at anime that had been going on for decades in Japan was Akira. It is perfection of cell animation. I encourage you to have a look. They had to invent new colors for it because a notoriously bad time. The reason why you hardly ever see animation during the night is it's far more difficult to animate than during the day. So, of course, Akira is largely at night just to sort of show off. There are times when it's almost like, look at what we can do in animation. So it's amazing. But in that episode of Neon some three years ago, I was saying how it was sort of projecting to the future, it was in 2019, and ooh, you know, what's going to happen in 2019? Let's hope that things as bad as portrayed in Akira don't happen to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Well, again, for very different reasons, the Tokyo Olympics genuinely, they projected this, they worked this out in Akira. The 2020 Olympics, of course, were delayed for a global disaster. The pandemic connected with COVID 19. So, this is all a very long way round to say there is some very strange stuff out there. The whole point of this podcast is to say how we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how either deliberately or accidentally it shows you real history. And Akira, oh my goodness, it predicted the future. That's really impressive in terms of pop culture. And, and not just something like, You know, sometimes Arthur C. Clarke gets it right with his science writing. No, in this they were projecting the end of days around the Tokyo Olympics, and it's still going on at time of recording in 2021. So, yes, this episode is about the Olympics, and of course, I'm going to be going back some two and a half thousand years to talk about the original Olympics in ancient Greece. But we'll be talking about the current situation as well. And also, because this is about the pop culture, about how the Olympics are explained and civilization's relationship with the Olympics, which has been going on for thousands of years and is still this sort of mythologizing of these games, these sports, still happens today in the era of the internet. So, okay, let's. Go back. This is the perfect thing to do. When did the Olympic Games start? The answer is、uh, nobody knows for sure. And it is a bit of a misnomer that the whole of ancient Greece hung on the idea of the Olympic Games. They were undeniably and became the most important ones. But there is plenty of evidence of other games going on. And so you might have. For example, the Spartan version or, or whatever. This is Sparta! So there were multiple different sports, and it was a way for these city states to basically show their power and prestige without necessarily having to go to war. It is worth remembering that there was no such place as ancient Greece. That is a modern invention. Because even a passing understanding, we know that the Athenians would go to war against the Spartans. Now, they had a religion, a culture. To a certain extent, and a language in common, 
Also, the way they tended to fight was very, very similar. But absolutely, nobody would say, I come from Greece. It'd be like, I come from Thebes or wherever. The point is that these were quite small city-states. They did not have armies of tens of thousands of men. That's the sort of resources you get when you have an empire. And therefore, one way to try and sort things out might be friendly competitive sport, which you still see today. The amount of nationalism and jingoism attached to the Euro 2020, for example. Now, I've obviously already done a podcast on that. You can have a listen to that one if you like. In that one, there were various England fans and people on Twitter sort of like being accused of being super jingoistic. And it definitely, it always annoys me how it's a sport, okay? How well some highly trained sportsman kicks a ball is not a reflection on the validity of that country or indeed how awesome you are as an individual. If you enjoy it, great. But don't start using it as a way to bully or intimidate other nations. But to be fair, whereas I think a lot of English people were appalled at some of the behaviours of the England fans and some of the comments online, it's worth pointing out other countries did that too. The Italians leading up to the final were pretty rude about the English, all right? And sometimes it's done with a sense of humour, but sometimes it isn't. And you can trace this back to the time of the Olympic Games. Winning that glory was in a way almost as good as winning a battle in that time. So exactly when it starts, don't know. But we do have Aristotle giving us a date of 776 BC. Now, obviously, he didn't use the word BC. That would have been meaningless. But the point is, yes, definitely, archaeology points out that clearly there were Olympic Games by about 776 BC. So that's a pretty good date to start with. Yes, there was probably stuff happening a little bit earlier, but by then we're starting to see the standardization of these events. Here we are at the start of the first event of the afternoon, the second semi-final of the 100 yards for people with no sense of direction. And what's interesting is, you may or may not know these, but almost none of the ancient Greek events still exist today. People say, oh, you know, they've got 100 metres. It's like, sort of. Start as a metre is a far more modern invention than ancient Greece. But if you are going to start, the marathon is obviously meant to be around the Battle of Marathon. And now over to Hans Clay for the start of the marathon for incontinence. So there are sort of like echoes and elements. But again, to go back to that martial side of things, the sprinting was done in full armour. So it had a very practical military turn. But the other thing that's worth pointing out, which is very different to modern day, is all of these events, apart from the armor one, were carried out naked. Thank you, Bob. Both men and women would compete completely in the buff because they didn't have spandex then or cotton shorts or what have you. The easiest way to run, throw a javelin, whatever, would be to be naked. You were unencumbered in any way in that situation, which would make the modern day Olympic Games, they do want to keep that tradition, parents would be constantly covering the eyes of their children. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? And we probably wouldn't be having those sort of close-up shots of people sort of like get, winning the prize because, um, well, they might be a little too happy for TV, says Jim politely. <laughs> oh my. 
I'll move on. The events were quite different. Another thing, I read a wonderful paper, probably about a decade ago now, pointing out how it wasn't specifically the Olympic Games, but they had evidence in another one of these cities' games of an area of the amphitheatre, or basically the arena where they were held, a special area, it was prime seats for the people who were basically, using the modern terms, doping. So the people who had come up with the potent potions, and, you know, there's lots of articles, you know, from the ancient regions about, you know, like eating bull testicles will give you strength and things like that. Now, whether or not they actually did is kind of beside the point, but the point is they were trying to create performance-enhancing drugs and A, it was encouraged, and B, the people who came up, the apothecaries, if you like, who came up with these things, were put in a position of honour. Now, of course, today, these performance-enhancing drugs are absolutely not allowed. It leads to an interesting debate, in the sense that you can take anabolic steroids all you want, but if all you're going to do is sit in front of TV and eat crisps, you are not going to become an Olympic athlete. Generally, what these things do is allow you to train longer, to pick up more weight, to last longer in a sprint or something like that, or a marathon. So it's about stamina and strength, but you still have to do the training, still have to put the hard work in. So rather than this constant cold war between the dopers and the incredible laboratories trying to find all this stuff, that maybe there's an argument to say, fine, use all the performance enhancing drugs you want because it's showing you how far the human body can go. Although, of course, you're putting your body in harm's way. But again, speaking to a friend of mine, colleague, I'm not quite sure how he would describe himself. I'm a huge fan. He does another amazing podcast called the High Performance Podcast. His name's Professor Damien Hughes. I was talking to him, basically, he and his wife went to university with my wife and I got to know them over the years. He's an incredibly kind, lovely, smart man. But he made a very valid point about modern day athletes saying they train their bodies to the point of almost failure. So basically all these athletes are one bad fall away from breaking their bodies. One of the reasons why we have a little bit of fat around us is to act as cushioning. But if you're trying to go faster, you're going to strip away that fat. But that means, in essence, you're a bit more brittle. You can't take the knocks as easily. I find that really fascinating. And indeed, all you have to do is look at high-level boxers, like heavyweight boxers, and they tend to not have the six-pack because you want a bit of cushioning if somebody's punching you in the gut. All of this performance enhancement, that's a huge conversation to have. I'm not saying I'm pro-anabolic steroids or any of these dangerous things. I would say it would be nice if everybody could be clean so we can see how a natural athlete goes. But of course, if everybody's doing their best to try and cheat and get some kind of edge, you might even be against it yourself. But if you keep losing, you're probably going to try and find out why they're winning if you're training just as hard and you're fed up of coming in seventh every time. So that's, if you like, a little flip to the, the modern world. Apologies for that. Let's go back again. So we've got the ancient Greek games starting in 776 BC. But then what's interesting is when the Romans capture Greece, conquer Greece, in the second century BC, so about 500 years later, and again, think of the institutions around you. What's been going for 500 years? And yet the ancient Olympic Games were still happening then. And what's interesting is, and this is just one of the signs of how the Romans may have had the money and the power 
and the army and the might but they deeply respected Greece. The analogy I give in one of my books called The Romans in a Hundred Facts, you know, it's a quick overview of the Romans, is the fact that the comparison I give is its difference between Europe and America. Nobody can doubt America today has the might, the influence, the power, the money, etc. But there is a sense of sometimes almost inferiority from the Americans, you know, begrudgingly admit, yeah, yeah, the history in Europe's longer. They had the Renaissance and we didn't. And they got castles, they got the Forum. I mean, all you have to do is look at Washington, D.C. It should, if it's going to be basically emulating what's great about America, is it should use uniquely American things. Like, basically, the Capitol Hill should be one giant stone wigwam or something like that. Instead, it's the Greek temple. It's built in exactly the same way people were building in the neoclassical designs in Europe heavily influenced by ancient Rome and ancient Greece. So anyway, in the 2nd century BC, Romans take over, games continue. So the question is, why did they stop? And the answer we can put it is an emperor, a Roman emperor called Theodosius. Now he was a nightmare for historians and archaeologists because in the early 300s we get Constantine and he converts the Roman civilization to Christianity. It becomes the official religion. It does not mean that everybody just instantly stopped being pagan. I was wondering if you'd welcome the love of the Lord Jesus into your life. This is really extraordinary timing because this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I feel there's a spiritual dimension lacking in my life, so I'd really be keen to hear more. Oh. And indeed, there's a lot of things continue. So, for example, when you get in the Bible, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesus is a major city in western modern-day Turkey, Anatolia. And why is that important? Because it had the Temple of Artemis there. It was one of the wonders of the world. And it was a center of what we've now called paganism. So if Paul is talking to Christians in one of the most, basically almost like the Rome, modern-day Rome for Catholics, that's what Ephesus was to pagans, in essence, in the first century AD. But if there are Christians there, that's showing you that even in this hotbed of paganism, that's the spread of Christianity. It's a little nod to the growing influence of Christianity. But you can see Christian and pagan were living, in essence, side by side. There had to be a break at some point, And if you like, Theodosius was the Christian fanatic. He started tearing down some of these wonders of the world, like that one in Ephesus. But one of the other things he did is he stopped the Olympic Games. And he stopped them because he saw it as, you know, in essence, it was still a nod. And obviously it was dripping with trophies and triumphs and recognition of these ancient gods of Apollo and Nike, etc. And that's just not acceptable if you're Christian nowadays. So he shut it down. Again, there's some evidence of some games continuing after his time, but Theodosius is the one who basically broke the chain. And what's interesting is that connection lasted, that shattering of the chain lasted for more than a thousand years. So we've talked about the really old stuff. Now let's talk about how on earth did the Olympic Games come back again? I'm back. But before I do, quick plug, come on everybody, please give us a review on whatever podcast format you're listening to this on. Just click on it, it'll take you two seconds. You can do it while you're literally listening to this. Please give us a review. Please, if you can, share this with somebody. I tweet it out. I try and put fun little gifs, gifs. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that word. Subtle this. Those little animated pictures on the internet, are they called gifs or gifs? 
Well, the G stands for graphics. That's a hard G, so I say GIF. The guy who invented it says it's GIF. Every Tuesday to promote it, and elsewhere during the week, I'm getting some requests, so I'll get to them, I promise. However, what I am going to say is, you know, it'd just be great if we could spread the love. Going back to that other podcast, Neon, we got to a peak of about 30,000 downloads a month. We don't get even 3,000 downloads a month for this one. So if I know that people like that kind of content, this sort of format of like the pop culture, and okay, that leads us into a conversation about history, please tell somebody else about it. Try and get somebody else to download it, subscribe, etc. Thank you. I will move on now. It'd be lovely to get some advertising on this at some point. Help to pay Greg and the uh, behind-the-scenes editing of this. I digress. So what you start seeing basically from the Age of Enlightenment. So 1600s, late-ish 1600s into the 1700s, with this sort of resurrection of these ideas, not specifically at Renaissance, but more a little bit later, when people are spending more time trying to unearth history rather than just the art of the past. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There becomes a sort of fascination of Greek games. And indeed, pretty much throughout the whole of Western Europe, you'll be able to find a city or town that tried to do its own version of the Olympic Games, even though it was in, I don't know, the Cotswolds in England. It's like, what? None of you even know what this is. But the point is there was these attempts at games. Perhaps one of the most famous ones, and again linking to the sort of political situation, is at the height 
of the French Revolution from 1796 to 1798 there were the Olympics of the Republic going on in France because they were trying to tear down these sort of Christian icons and, and which was linked to the royalty so let's go back to this earlier time where it was egalitarian in theory you did not have to be a person of noble birth to go to the ancient Greek games so basically if you were good you could play and it was in essence an meritocracy which is what the French Revolution was trying to aim at it badly got derailed but it sort of fitted the spirit of revolution okay an evil revolutionary and have murdered the ambassador and have turned him into pate. So then we've got other attempts and like I say you want to do research on this you're going to see it popping up all over the place but about a generation later something else really important happened. You get the Greek War of Independence. Now it isn't quite like that. This is the thing. History is always more complicated. I've heard people refer to the 400 year occupation of Greece and it's like, do we call it the Roman occupation of Britain or do we just call it Roman Britain? You know, after how many years does it stop being an occupation? If somebody's been running something for 400 years, by 300 years people are kind of used to the status quo whether it's good or bad or whatever the other thing about the Great War of Independence is if you look at it on a map they only managed to make independent about a third of modern-day Greece indeed a city like Thessalonica or Thessaloniki is the second largest city in modern-day Greece and that was part of the Ottoman Empire until the early 20th century it was about 90 years after the end of the Greek War of Independence so they continued to be nibbling away at Ottoman territories to put it into the the Greek country and again as I've already pointed out seeing there was no such country as Greece 2,000 years ago the actual construct of the modern-day country of Greece is anachronistic it never really existed but people neatly sort of gloss over that I'm not going to go into the politics of this obviously everybody has the right to self-govern no, empires aren't inherently a good thing but look it's complicated but once that happened suddenly we've got this rather alien concept of the Ottoman Empire and I'm using that in inverted commas the West really didn't like the Ottoman Empire even though large chunks of Eastern Europe were part of it for centuries the Ottoman Sultans were just as European in essence in terms of geography as something like the Holy Roman Emperor but because they were a different religion they were always seen as other and from the East and not wanted. So yes Greek War of Independence and by 1821 there is at least starting to be a country called Greece. Interestingly, literally during the Greek War of Independence there was an actual civil war between two sides of the Greeks because they couldn't agree on how to run Greece but hadn't actually won the other war yet to get their independence. So it's messy. From 1820s to modern day Greek history is messy and complicated, okay? Right, I'm going to move on from that. But the point is, suddenly Athens isn't part of this alien empire anymore, which starts leading people into these ideas of, well, maybe we should resurrect the Olympic Games. You know, this is a perfect time to do it. And while, like I say, you'll find ones earlier than the 1820s, 
What you get by the 1850s is Evangelo Zappas. Obviously, he is of Greek ancestry, and he was very wealthy, and he wanted to resurrect the Greek games. And so now you've got practically it can happen. We got somebody with a vision, and we got most importantly somebody with money and connections. So now it can happen rather than just somebody dreaming in a coffee shop somewhere. And he basically managed to will it into existence. And from 1870 to 1875, there were modern day Olympic Games in Greece. However, problem. Look, for, for starters, the first one was a big show. 30,000 people came into a stadium. I mean, we're talking about the 1870s. That's a massive crowd, okay? But Evangelos eventually died, money sort of like kind of dried up, things were going in different directions, Greece itself, as I said, complicated, still fighting wars against the ailing Ottoman Empire, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, Greece itself is not particularly a rich country, there are complications going on. So. While, if you like, Evangelos Zappas proved to the world that the Olympic Games had still had interest and still could happen, it wasn't what the modern Olympic Games actually came from. That came about 20 years later, when we get Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who in 1894 creates the International Olympic Committee. Now, it's all in French, but I'll just say it the right that way. Baron Pierre de Coubertin is seen as the founder of the modern Olympics. And I think we need to give a nod of the hat to Evangelo Zappas there, but if you like, there's a dotted line between Zappas and the modern Olympics. However, with Coubertin, he definitely started the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, that is still the governing body of the modern Olympics. So it's a dotted line from one, it is a straight line from the other. So that's why we tend to see the modern Olympics as being born in the 1890s. And funnily enough, the first modern Olympic Games in 1896 are in Athens. And it drew a large crowd. There were 43 events. It happened over multiple days. And so now, you know, we're starting to see the modern Olympics. But are we? Because in 1900, they're in Paris and they do OK. And then 1904, they're in St. Louis in America. And that was really poorly attended. And so we then go back to Greece in 1906, which isn't four years later, and it does better than St. Louis, but it's still all a bit amateur hour. Again, the events of the early Olympics are not to the standards of, you know, where we would have expected by, let's say, the 1930s, even the 1930s. It's still quite amateur hour. Indeed, very early on in the Olympics, there during the marathon, one individual managed to cheat by jumping in, I'm not making this up, jumping into a cab and having himself driven most of the way and then coming out and then sort of like running a little bit ahead of the others, but not too far and and eventually winning and then being disqualified. I suppose there is a sort of Machiavellian ingenuity to your transgression. So, yeah, talk about performance enhancing drugs. We're now at the stage, you know, from the 1930s onwards, nobody's going to get away. It wouldn't even think of jumping into a car to try and do something like that to, to, to cheat that way. With my power over dumb animals, I'll hypnotize this gorilla and have him delay the other racers. <laughs> and now here is an interesting question for you. 
Only four countries have ever been to all of the modern Olympic Games. Can you name them? What four countries have been there from 1896 to today? And the answers are, you, I'm going to say you're going to guess one of them. I'm going to say you'll probably guess another one, but the other two might surprise you. So the obvious one is Greece. You know, they're going to turn up. It's kind of their thing. All right. The other one is sort of logical. It's France, because the modern version of the games is kind of their thing. So they're almost duty bound to be there. The other two? Well, neither of these countries existed in 776 BC. They are Australia and the United Kingdom. Now, why didn't America go to all of them? And why didn't other countries go to all of them? Now, I'm, I'm going to say that I will happily say Russia slash USSR. We can put those together. But the point is that the Olympic Games does it best to be apolitical, but it's had real problems almost since its inception with politics. So there have been multiple occasions where countries have boycotted the Olympics, perhaps the most famous one that was the Moscow Olympics of 1980, well, obviously at the height of the Cold War, so America was never going to go to that one. So, you know, that, that's an example, but there have been other times when the Soviet Union, 1984, funny enough, the Soviet Union and many communist countries boycotted Olympics, but there have been various boycotts at various times. During the Mexico Olympics, there was horrific civil unrest and deaths just before the Olympic Games, which was all kind of covered up at the time. It's really terrible. The Munich Olympics, you know, after, I'll come to the Berlin Olympics in a moment, but the Munich Olympics in the 1970s, because of the reputation of the Berlin Olympics, the Germans were intent on showing the world that they weren't like they used to be. And because of the lack, lack of security, you then have the Palestinian terrorist attacks on the Israeli uh, sports people leading again to multiple deaths and a completely botched attempt at trying to get the hostages back. It was an absolute unmitigated disaster. So, you know, there's been death at the Olympics, there's been controversy at the Olympics, obviously there's been cheating at the Olympics. So we'll come to the myths in a moment, but yes, I am going to have to mention, I already have, the Berlin Olympics of 1936, where, yeah, okay, fine. So we got Albert Speer, who I've already mentioned in the past, he was the uh, Hitler's architect, in inverted commas, and he designed the, the stadium in Berlin, which has been used uh, since. It's a perfectly practical stadium. It, it doesn't have any swastikas on it anymore. But the point is, yeah, the guy knew actually how to design stuff. And he liked particularly designing these sort of monolithic things. And that's what you need with a stadium. You don't want a, a small little bijou stadium that seats five. Very, very, very intimate. No, you, you need 60,000 people there, OK? So anyway, the point is that, obviously, from the perspective of the Nazis, this was a chance to show Aryan supremacy. There's the famous thing about Jesse Owens not meeting Hitler. But, but this is the thing, Hitler didn't meet anybody. So it wasn't a specific snub to Jesse Owens because he didn't single him out not to sort of be met. However, it's safe to say that Hitler was furious and it did somewhat put a wrinkle in the whole Aryan supremacy when a black man from America won an Olympic gold. So, however, it is worth pointing out that he was treated abysmally by America when he came back again. So, yeah, that, that wasn't particularly fun for him either. It's a quite a sad story. Anyway, so, but an interesting innovation about 
1936 Olympics, which I think a lot of people know, is that they came up with the idea, it was actually the Nazis that came up with the idea of why don't we light a torch at the site of the ancient games in Greece and we will carry that torch by relay all the way to the Berlin Olympics to make a connection between the ancient games and where it's being held now. So that was indeed the first time it was done was in the Berlin Olympics. But what's interesting is the Olympics of 1940 and 1944, they never happened because of World War II. And indeed one of those was meant to be in Tokyo, okay. And the 48 Olympics only happened kind of last minute because again, the whole world was still sort of recovering from World War II. Nobody thought that they could actually sort of get anything together and it was Britain. Now it is worth pointing out the London Olympics of 1940 those British Olympics were at a time when there was still basically food shortages and rationing in Britain. Two breads and a big thing of butter instead and everything else and a pork pie with all like an egg in it and everything like that and uh, some pickled onions and loads of crisps and lemonade tart. Well, sorry, but you're only entitled to an ounce of cheese between you and no ham, you've used all your tokens, and no butter either, I'm afraid. Yeah, but we want it. I remember seeing an interview of one of the British Olympiads from 48, um, basically talking about how much his stomach was rumbling. And basically he was given like an extra helping of mashed potato just to help him. So funnily enough, Britain didn't do particularly well in those Olympics because the sort of the training regimes and the diet and all that kind of stuff was out of the windows. Indeed, ex-prisoner of war camps minus the barbed wire, were used as part of the Olympic village for basically people coming overseas. So 48 was really just sort of like sticky back plastic, you know, scotch tape, whatever, cardboard Olympics. But hey, it happened. But the other thing that the British then had to make a decision about is, do we do that torch lighting thing again? Because it's a pretty good idea, but it was invented by the Nazis. And oh yeah, there's another problem. And as I said, complicated, Greek history complicated. There was a civil war going on in Greece at that time. So basically they decided we are gonna continue that tradition. And so they got people to quickly light the stuff and then very quickly they were escorted onto a British Navy ship just straight out of Greece and then rather than it being paraded through the whole of Europe it was just chucked, chucked onto a ship the guy kept running on the ship the ship came all the way back or other different people it was a relay and it was brought back to Britain and there we go so it's really from 48 it was decided this this lighting thing is going to become a permanent thing and indeed, when you come to the one that I've come from, the London 2012, I live in London, 2012 Olympics was amazing. Yeah, it cost billions. And that's the thing. Nowadays, it just it's ruinously expensive. But London is not particularly a friendly place. But for that entire three, four weeks, everybody was happy in London. Everybody. You saw somebody in one of the volunteer outfits and everybody kind of cheered them and gave them a high five and just put a smile on every single Londoner's face. It was remarkable. However, previously, the 2008, China wanted to sort of show the world that it had, it had arrived. And so the torch relay tour went through loads of different countries that really weren't on the way to China. And I know that there were times when people were kind of booing it and sort of almost protesting the flame because it was sort of being associated with communist China. So yeah, the, the fact that the IOC is always saying that it's not political is a fallacy because actually it's almost always political. There's almost always some kind of political controversy. But the final thing I'm going to say is this myth making. So going back to the London 2012 Olympics, what I find interesting is 
every country is worried about the events it can potentially win in. So during London 2012, the British team did amazingly. Team GB did amazingly well, but America didn't really care because, as a lot of people said, a lot of the, the events we won were sitting down events like rowing and cycling. Indeed, the French were so furious at the amount of Olympic golds that Team GB were winning in the various cycling races that they actually accused, I'm not making this up, they accused the British team of cheating because their wheels were too circular which led to the IOC checking the wheel. And obviously the, the British people just staring at them in disbelief going, what? Hey, how can a wheel be too circular? You know, that's not cheating. You just want them to be circular and, and be, no, you know, we're using sort of the kind of the same tires and wheels as everybody else. But it was just a sign of frustration of just how many they were winning. So Britain did amazingly well in 2012, but that was not the story in China or in America or in Russia because everybody's worried about their own thing. And the one I always remember is that in the Beijing 2008, there was for one of the rare occasions, China does very well in things like table tennis and perhaps some of the more sort of skill set ones tend to not do as well on the open track and field events, but they did have one individual who did well, you know, got an Olympic medal uh, on, I think it was the hurdle but the problem was he went to the Olympics in 2012 and he became a national hero and he's just a you know huge mythology around him he came to 2012 London knowing that basically he was carrying an injury there was no way he was going to win a medal so basically the Chinese press were ready to go on this he basically takes a tumble on the hurdles and he's you know he's dead last you know but he's just lying there crying and he's holding his leg and he's you know sustained some kind of injury but what was telling is that the Chinese press were all ready to go or you know already the narrative had been set about the bra bravery of like oh you know against insurmountable odds you know this shows you the you know the can-do attitude blah 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 and it was all so eloquent or done so quickly there was no doubt that everybody was in on this and this was just the way he was going to bow out to the Olympics because it was either that or like he comes, I don't know, fourth, and he's just a loser at that point. People don't know he's carrying an injury at that point, so they turn the injury into the story. And every, think about it. When you know about know, Michael Phelps or, or whoever, there, there's this sort of cachet and mystery around them. It was almost like fate decided that they would get all those Olympic medals or whatever. There's the golden hour in, like I say, London 2012, when in the space of one hour there were three Olympic golds won by Team GB, all in the same stadium and you know it's great it's wonderful i'm not saying they cheated but it suddenly suddenly these events that weren't ever guaranteed to happen are very quickly turned into almost a moment of destiny which again proves how awesome our country is so again there is this huge connection between national cachet the sort of the myth building the legend of the supreme athlete and that's if you like the point of the olympics and yet the politics gets in there as well and there is nearly 3,000 years worth of history around these events, except with this weird period of complete silence for about a thousand years. So there we go. Really hope you like this one. As always, there's a podcast coming out every Tuesday and hopefully see you soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.